Well, I grew up in church, which means I grew up singing Father Abraham. For those of you that weren't raised in church, it's sort of like the Christian's kid version of the Hokey Pokey. We sing a few lines and then randomly yell out an arm or a foot until both arms are waving, both legs bouncing, and the chin is raised high in the air. You know, it's a great song to sing as a kid, but it's really just a ploy to get us to settle down before the lesson, because when the the song ends, it ends with a final turn around and sit down, which you happily do, because you've been exhausted from marching in place like a lunatic for the last several minutes. Now, having to sing that song through the vast majority of my younger childhood, I have unfortunately not been able to forget the lyrics. And they sometimes just bounce right back in my head. Kids, you cannot let me down at this moment. Okay, I need every kid's attention real quick. How does the song go? Father Abraham. Right arm, left arm, and then it goes on, right? And you just keep doing that until your whole body is just kind of, you know, you look like a lunatic, you know, just kind of. Anyway, it may sound like another goofy kid's song, but the goal of the little game is to teach kids that they can be children of Abraham. Though, as a downside, it never teaches them how they can become his children. It says, you're a child of Abraham, and you're a child of Abraham, and I'm a child of Abraham. And then what the arms and legs have to do with it, I have no idea. But... We're coming to Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 25. And in this text, Paul tells us that Father Abraham had many sons. The Jews are some of them, and so are you, Gentile. So we can praise the Lord. However, he goes even further, though, much further than what the nursery rhyme does, and tells us how we can become children of Abraham. How Gentiles have come to belong in the family of Abraham. So in this text, where we're at in Romans, we're beginning to ask the question, what makes the people of God? What makes the people of God? In other words, what distinct qualification makes us sons and daughters of Abraham? As we will see, Paul argues, as he has done so well in the previous sections, that it is faith alone that makes us Abraham's blessed offspring. So let's ask that question. Why must inclusion in the family of God depend on faith? I don't want to forget that. Thank you, kiddos. Those of you that sang, thank you. That that, that saved my life. I've been singing it all by myself, and that would have been terrible. So thank you for singing. Paul has made the claim that there is a righteousness that is offered apart from the law. If you've been tracking with us, and you know he made that claim beginning in Romans chapter 3, and then he goes into Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, where he presented both Abraham and David as the key representative examples of how God has always credited faith as righteousness apart from a person's works. His arguments in that text were focused more on the individual who has faith. He says things like, it is the one who does not work, but trust in him who justifies that receives justification. In verse 9, Paul takes a more corporate focus, shifting from individuals who have faith to a family, namely the family of Abraham. Faith is credited to an individual person as righteousness, but I think it's helpful that we see in Romans 4, it doesn't stay at an individual level. It also brings that individual into the blessed line, the blessed assembly, the blessed family of Abraham. As Paul shows... Membership in Abraham's family is not based on ethnic, religious, or moralistic factors, but only on faith, ever only on faith. This is important. You might be wondering, why in the world do we need to understand how Abraham's family works? Well, it's important because whoever is in Abraham's family is in the family of God. Abraham's sons and daughters are God's sons and daughters. That's the, by nature, that's how it works. So we're asking the question, who belongs in Abraham's family? Who are Abraham's children? And the real question we're asking is, who are God's people? And how did they become God's people? It's an important question to ask, right? Because it applies to you. How do you, 
How do you know that you are part of God's people? How do you know that you're a son or daughter of Abraham? How can the children's song, Father Abraham had many sons, how can that be true of you? How can you say with good confidence, I am one of them? Well, that's what the goal is today in Romans chapter 4. Paul's goal is to show how this inclusion into the family of Abraham works. How do we know that membership in God's family is by faith and not on things like circumcision or other religious aspects? You see, a typical Jew of the day would have told you that the one evidence that you have, the one distinct thing that you have to prove that you are in the family of Abraham is one that you have the law, and with that you have been circumcised as an application of the law. So that is your basis of belonging to the children of Abraham. But as Paul shows, it is not the law nor circumcision, but faith that is the prerequisite of covenant membership. Notice I said the word covenant membership. We're going to see a lot here that's going to shift us away from this me-focused Christianity in this passage to an us. We live in an over-individualized aspect of God's people, and we've forgotten that God's not just saving you. He's saving a family for himself. So as much as we have all these questions, "Ah, I don't know about organized religion. I'm sorry, God's saving a family of people. And we've we've got to wake up to that fact if we're going to be biblical, gospel-centered people. We're going to talk about covenant membership. Is it an archaic word? Absolutely. It's as old as the Bible itself. To be a member of God's family. To be a part of the covenant people of God. It might be old terminology. It might be something that you don't hear in a lot of hip churches today. But the reality is, is that we belong in a covenant relationship with other people. Because we have been saved by the same means they have. Which is by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, having just talked about the blessing in just the previous verse, about the man against whom the Lord does not count sin, Paul then shifts and asks the question, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? If justification is by faith alone, then to whom is justification offered? You see, there's a problem in Paul's examples that he gave. He gave Abraham and David as proof that we are justified by faith alone. The problem is both men are circumcised Jews. So up to this moment, we're still thinking, okay, Paul, thank you for showing us that we are justified by faith. But your examples are still relegated to the circumcised party of Jews. What proof that do we have that justification by faith is not just for the circumcised, not just for the law-abiding Jew, but for the godless, sinful Gentile who has none of the things that the Jews have? Can an uncircumcised, and we're going to use that kind of metaphorical here too, can a lawless, sinful Gentile who's not ethnically legally, moralistically, religiously in the Jewish faith, can they be justified by faith? Now, keep in mind, the question behind the question is always going to be, how are you in the people of God? That's always going to be the question before us here. Paul shows that by looking at Abraham's life, if, we, if, we, if we're going to go back to Abraham, so he comes back and he revisits Abraham, we see that justification was never based on circumcision. Never based on what we do. So think of circumcision as our actions, our works, right? We, circumcision is a very specific action for Abraham, but it can also be a metaphor for all kinds of actions that we would do, thinking that it's obedience to God. It's not based on circumcision, but always based on faith. Here's what he says in verses 9 and 10. For we say, so he's he's basing this common ground, we say that faith was counted or credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? What would you say to that? Well, he clearly says it was not after, but before he was circumcised. So when was Abraham justified? When was Abraham considered right with God? Let's just go back to Genesis 15 and track the chronology. 
And Paul shows that if you read the Bible carefully, you know what comes first. It's not, this is not a chicken or egg type of debate. We know what comes first. God made his promise. Abraham believed God and he was counted as righteous. Circumcision comes way later in Genesis 17. But in Genesis 15, he's counted as righteous. Do you hear what that means? Uncircumcised Abraham was justified by faith. That's Paul's point. You see, if Abraham was credited with righteousness after he submitted to circumcision, then one could make a very viable argument that justification is by works. Or that it's only those who are circumcised that receive a righteousness. Only those who obey God. Only those that have the law that can be justified. How crazy is it that in Genesis 15, we have a God that has the foresight that says, I care so much about the way things work, and I'm going to work in such a right and righteous way that I am not ever going to contradict myself. So I'm going to give Abraham justification before I tell him to circumcise himself. That's the kind of sovereign God that we have, that he leaves himself no loopholes. He works perfectly, even down to chronology of what happens. You see, if Abraham, if if just by, by sheer haphazardness, Abraham got circumcised one second before he was counted as righteous, then our whole justification by faith alone goes out the window. We should all become circumcised people of God. Which is what the Judaizers were arguing. But Paul says, well, even Abraham wasn't justified by circumcision. circumcision. He was justified while he was uncircumcised. So how then can one claim that the gift of a right relationship uh, with God comes by circumcision or by obedience to the law? If uncircumcised Abraham was considered righteous by God because of his faith, then why should not others who are uncircumcised, who do not have the law, be considered righteous because of their faith? The answer is is that uncircumcised people can and are counted righteous, as right with God on the basis of faith alone. So again, you might be going, okay, this whole circumcision talk is, I've never had this concern. Well, once again, we have to understand that Paul is, 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 is emphasizing our works, and showing that, they, that we have nothing in and of ourselves that qualifies us for a right standing with God. You might think he's being repetitive. Why would he need to continue proving the singular point? Not circumcision, but faith. Not circumcision, but faith. Paul, we, ha- we are in the 20, what are we in? The 21st century or the 20th century? 21st century? Okay. Just because I have degrees does not make me smart. So, <laughs> Paul, we're in the, say it again, 21st? Okay. 21st century, what in the world does circumcision have to do with us? We haven't relied on circumcision in millennia. So, great, you, you, you only... Shh, shut up, Siri. Um, let me put this on. Do not disturb. Okay. So, what in the world does circumcision have to do with us? Couldn't he have just said all this? in one chapter and been done with it and moved on because that would have satisfied us in the 21st century. My friends, in our own day, we might not be all that focused on circumcision, but we do oftentimes, oftentimes, nearly every day, drift into the false thinking that our distinction as God's people is based on external things. If someone were to walk up to you and ask you, how do you know that you, are a member of God's family? How would you answer? I have no doubt, I have no doubt that verbally, both you and I would say, because of my faith in Jesus, I have no doubt that verbally, we would be absolutely 100% theologically accurate in this. What I doubt is what my heart says. What I doubt is what my mind thinks. You see, it's too easy to lean on a number of other things as proof. I might say I'm justified by faith, but in my mind, I act as if I'm one of God's people because I've been baptized. 
I'm one of God's people because I have the right stance on social issues. I'm not woke. And so I, therefore, am a child of Abraham. That's the thing that we, yeah, I mean, we, we, have, we have done that in recent days. We have acted that way as if woke or unwokeness is like the key distinction of who's in the people of God. Regardless of what your, your views on that is, that is a sad tragedy that has made us, duped us into thinking that our stances on social things are the key evidence of who belongs in God's family. My friends, can I just tell you that? That's a sin. It's a heretical doctrine. If you don't like woke people, fine, argue with the social stance. Take a biblical stance on it. But don't you dare for one minute believe that you are right with God because you're not them. Maintaining a certain rhetoric. I say the right things. I make the right arguments. I make the right moves. Therefore, I am clearly one of God's people. I have certain theological perspectives. And because I have certain theological perspectives, I have the right ones, by the way. Therefore, I clearly am a son of Abraham. My friends, in all these things, we tend to make this proof that we are God's people who live in right ways. I have seen it down to where young moms will get into a discussion over being righteous mothers. It comes down to a discussion of whether they use cloth diapers or not. Homeschooled their kids or not. I was raised in a church that believed that if you were truly a righteous person of God, then you homeschooled your kids. Because that's what righteous people do. But Paul over and over and over says, the righteous people do not just homeschool their kids. They didn't argue that. Righteous people aren't woke or unwoke. Righteous people live by bingo, faith alone. 2,000 years of winning. Faith alone. Faith alone. Now, I don't want to discredit that we need to have social discussions and political arguments and have stances that we are convicted by and that we, that we are going to take a biblical stance on political issues and different things like that. I don't, I don't, I'm not discrediting that at all. But it's when you believe that because you have these certain stances or political views that you are a part of the people of God, that that is the heretical, dangerous problem. And there's many, many Republicans going to hell today. And if you're blue, Democrats as well. And the, the reality is, we don't know how many of which. The, the, the fact is, is, it's not about the political stances that makes you right before God. I got worked up about that because as much as we like to say, I know that I'm justified by faith, our words, our minds, our hearts, our tendencies show just how often we drift into external things as proof that I am one of God's children. My friends, we have churches all over the United States right now whose pastors have said the right things all the while keeping secret liaisons in their bed with other women. We have church scandals that are are rolling through the world right now, not just through the nation. Where adults are coming forward with dozens, by the dozens, con- confessing and, and saying that, that their pastor touched them inappropriately. We can say the right things all we want. It's a matter of the heart and how we live. The righteous live by faith, not by your words, not by your stances, not by your views, by faith. May we always be a sola fide, people of God. Faith alone. And nothing else. Because it depends on Christ alone. You see, if faith alone works, and faith alone is true, then Christ alone works. And Christ alone is true. You knock out faith alone, you make Christ redundant and unnecessary. It has to be by faith alone, always. 
for everyone. The Ethiopian eunuch would not have agreed with your governmental structure. He was not a a Republican Democrat. He lived in a dictatorship and loved it. He was a key official. He might not have agreed with your form of government, but he agreed that it was by faith in Jesus that he would represent heaven as an Ethiopian eunuch. Paul warns against treating external realities as the internal basis of your relationship with God. You may not like what I have just said. My friends, I have to do this all the time. I am not a child of God because I preach the gospel. I am not a child of God because I know how to articulate the gospel. Years of preaching the gospel will not earn me any more of a right status with God. I have no merit no matter how many years I do this. I am a child of God because I believe the gospel. There's a world of difference between those two things. For Abraham, circumcision was a sign, a sign, an external sign that served as a seal or confirmation of the righteousness he already had through faith before he was circumcised. So, So what is circumcision? It's not the substance. It's not the righteousness. It's just the sign of the righteousness. It's just the external thing that points to an internal reality. A sign is a sign, not the substance. I was driving on the interstate the other day, and I had to remind myself that the sign that says Alexandria doesn't mean that I have reached Alexandria, but Alexandria is this way. You keep going. If I stop at the sign thinking I've reached Alexandria, Louisiana, I've got a big problem. I'm never going to get where I'm going, am I? My friends, when you treat these external things, these signs as the substance, you never get to the substance. If baptism becomes the substance, the key proof, the crucial element that you belong in the people of God, if your rhetoric, your political arguments, if your positions, your social stances, if all of that which are just mere external things, if any of that becomes your substance for why you are righteous before God, you have not yet reached it. You've fallen short of the destination that Christ leads us to. If any of Paul's readers think that they are Abraham's children only because of circumcision, he's already argued this. God's people are not, Jews are not Jews because of external only. Jews are Jews because of internal faith. He he shows us that circumcision was just a sign that pointed to his faith. And he tries to correct that view. So tracking his logic, if Abraham was already justified by faith before circumcision, if circumcision was just a sign of his faith, then Abraham should be considered not only the father of the circumcised, but the father of Texans, the uncircumcised. The father of Gentile pagans, as were most of us. We, as Texans, can sing, Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them. And it wasn't by circumcision. It was by faith. The common denominator among the children of God in Paul's day and in our day is what? Faith in God's promises, which are ultimately realized in the death burial, resurrection, ascension, and soon-to-be return of Jesus Christ. That's it. If you're here at Grace Church, you're wondering, how are all these people connected? Just, Just look around. I mean, we're not connected because of ethnicity. By the grace of God, we've had a growing Hispanic population in Grace Church. By the grace of God, we've had a growing black population in Grace Church. By the grace of God, the white community is still here. (laughs) Most of the time. What's the common denominator? We don't agree on the same social structure. We don't. You're just seeing this back in 2020 and 2021. We couldn't we couldn't even agree on masks. We still haven't decided whether or not we're like a suit and tie church or whether we're like shorts and polo church. You know, we, we, we don't even dress the same. 
You have some people who are secret Democrats here and some people who are open Republicans. We don't even have the same political structure. Do you want to know what the common denominator among the people of God is? And apparently God says, that's enough. These may not be the people that you would stand on the same political GOP with. But these are the people you'll be standing in heaven with. My friends, just, let's just re- realize it. We drift from sola fide all the time, sadly. We make arguments that are important into crucial things. Into the thing. Again, I'm not saying don't have the discussions, don't have the arguments, don't have the disagreements. Have them. As long as you remember that the, the linchpin of salvation is by faith. You take out faith, it all falls apart. If you make it about anything else, it falls apart. That system doesn't work. Judaizers tried it. It's believing in Jesus and being circumcised. And Paul says, be damned in that. That will send you to hell. It's faith alone in Christ alone. Now, having just proved that Abraham was justified by faith before his circumcision... Paul now escalates the implications of this, of his argument. First of all, if justification is based on faith, or is based on the law, or any external factor for that matter, then what's the point of faith, or even promises? Right? If it's, again, he's made this point already. If, if it's all based on what we do, then everything God gives is what he owes us. It's wages, not promise, not grace. And here's what he says. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, the heirs of what? Well, heirs of blessing that was promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. Faith is null. Literally, faith is empty. How many of you are willing to say there is no place for faith? Well, if you believe that justification comes by works, you just did. And he takes it even a step further. If there's no place for faith, then the promise is void. The word there is useless. Useless. Have you ever thought that when you approach the gospel with this mindset that you are in the people of God because of some kind of external factor, you have just with your actions, with your words, with your mindset, with your lifestyle, have just said God's promises are pointless. That's what Paul says. If it's based on the law, then... Throw out the promises. The heck with them. Nobody would do that though. Because the promises are not useless. Especially seeing that his promises are sourced in grace. And not our merit. Second, those who seek justification through the law have misunderstood what the law can do. Or what the law does. My friends, let me just tell you clearly and, 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 and concisely here. The law does not bring a person righteousness It can't. It was never made for that. Paul argues that the law brings wrath. And then he says, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So let's just flip his logic on the head. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. So let's just change it a little bit. Where there is law, there is transgression. You're going to apply the law. What are you going to find 100% of the time? Sin. You go to the law, what do you find every single time? Wrath. You throw yourself on your moral standards, your religious, your religious uh, uh, law legal set, whatever it is. You, you throw yourself on any of these works. What you're going to find every single time is you have terribly, tragically, drastically fallen short of the glory of God. That applies to your motherhood, your fatherhood, your childhood, whatever it is. If you say, I am a good child of God because of the way I parent. Go to the law and the law will show you your parenting is terribly, terribly faulty. You're a fallen even in your parenting. Relationship with others. You apply the law. You are a sinner. You are prideful. You are selfish. You are broken. The law every single time. Where there is law, no one comes out good. 
The law's purpose is to highlight sin, not do away with it. It points it out, it condemns it, it convicts it, it shows and proves. You go to the law, it will point out sin. So if you go to the law for justification, you are going to a car without wheels and it will get you nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. We go to the law to learn about our sin. We must go somewhere else to learn about how to cover up, to get rid of, to do away with that sin. It won't be found in the law. So there's this threefold argument. He's proven the validity of justification by faith and not by works. Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised. And then he says, if justification is based on works, then faith is empty and God's promises are pointless. And then third, he he puts the nail in it and he says, uh, the law or our attempted works of the law only spotlights our sin and fails to provide righteousness. What then? That is why it depends on faith. There's his conclusion. Because if all these three things he's just said is true, then it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. That means guaranteed to you. You realize if it was ever on works, you Texans would never have been saved. But because it depends on faith, your righteousness, your justification is secured. I love the Greek of it. It is firmly founded. In other words, the concrete of your justification has dried and is now rock solid. No one can change it. It's not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So, that's why it depends on faith. Now, let's ask the question, what does such faith look like? Paul is not only concerned with telling his readers that justification is by faith alone. He also wants his readers, you, to understand what such faith looks like. He's not just, he's not, we we live in a day where faith is very ambiguous, right? Where there's all kinds of definitions for faith. So he's going to give us a clear understanding of what kind of faith he's talking about. He does this in two ways. He, first he shows us what Abraham believed about God. And then he shows us how Abraham believed God. What Abraham believed about God, and then how he believed God. Um, So, what did Abraham believe about God? Paul writes in verse 17, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. When God made a promise, Abraham believed him on the basis of two realities of God. God gives life to dead things. That's the reality, number one. Number two, God can make things ex nihilo. Does anybody know what that word means? Thank you. Out of nothing. Ex nihilo. God can make anything he wants out of nothing. So he had those two two beliefs about God. If it's dead, God can raise it up. If it doesn't exist, God can make it. He's not hindered by anything. He believed that God is not just a resurrector, but he's also a creator. Literally, no bars held about what God can do. God says, Abraham, you old hundred-year-old man, you and your 90-something-year-old wife are going to have a baby. Abraham's like, God, I'm as good as dead, but you can raise the dead. So if I talk, then... Somehow this dead man's raising back up to have a baby. So He believed that about God. He knew God as El Shaddai, God Almighty, God who can do anything, who can and will keep his promises. When God promises it, it's as good as done. I love the way some of the Old Testament does this sometimes, or the New Testament even. They use sometimes, they use the, the past tense of a future reality as if it's already happened because when god says it it's going to happen might as well bank on it as if it already did it's just a beautiful reality of how scripture sees god's promise so that's what he believed about god god can resurrect and god can create those two things now how did abraham believe god that's the focus of verses 18 through 22 
In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. What did he just believe about God? God could raise the dead. His own body is as good as dead, which is close enough. So God can do something about it. Since he was about a 100 years old, and when he considered the barrenness, the actual word in Greek there is nekros, the deadness of Sarah's womb. What did he just say that he believed about God? God could give life to the dead. Sarah's womb is dead. God can give life in Sarah's womb. He's not hindered by anything. No unbelief made, his, made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Now the phrase hope against hope summarizes Abraham's faith well. Seeing that he was 100 years old, you got that, right? I don't know many 100-year-olds that are having babies. Um, You also get the fact that Sarai was old and barren. Like it it says the way of children had passed. Like the way of women had passed. I'm not going to explain that, but no babies. Okay, no babies. Logically, biologically, rationally, this can't happen. But because God said that it would, Abraham believed that it would. So he hoped against hope. We can apply that to a lot of things that we believe that God has promised. Eternal life? How can someone live forever? Biologically, the logic of time? Like, that just doesn't make sense. And yet we believe against hope. We hope against hope that we will live forever. We might die, and if we die, guess what? Good news. God gives life to the dead. So we live in faith, trusting that when God says, those who believe in me will never die, but will live. We believe that, even as we're taking our loved ones who believed in Jesus to the graveyard. Because we believe that God always keeps his promises. Now, uh, to those who sometimes struggle with doubt, I know that there's some of us here. I say us because I'm one of them. To those of us that struggle with doubt, whether it's doubt in God's promises, whether it's doubt in what God has actually said about you, being his child. See, I have these, I have these struggles, especially after moments of sin and temptation where I'm like, okay, what God has promised me can't be true of me. I'm too sinful. I'm too broken. I'm too fallen. Anybody else ever have those moments? Okay, good. I'm, I'm glad. We, we'll start a support group with the five of us. <laughs> Paul is not saying that Abraham had a perfect faith. He's not saying that. When he says he didn't waver, he's not saying he had a perfect faith. In fact, if you go back to Genesis, you find the exact opposite. He lied about Sarai being his wife twice because he was afraid of losing his life in a foreign country. And then he kind of felt like God was working too slow. So he listened to Sarai and he slept with her maidservant Hagar to kind of make things a little faster. Okay? So anything but a perfect faith. Times of questioning or weakness can be expected from time to time. None of us can ever attain a perfect faith. The question is, though, do we see in the trajectory, like we see in the trajectory of Abraham's life, that we come back, we recenter, we are restabilized, we are restored in our hope when we think about who God is. Those moments of doubt answered powerfully by looking at the greatness and the glory of our resurrecting and creating God. I might die tomorrow. I might go to the doctor and the doctor say, you have three months, there's nothing we can do. Not one of God's awesome, amazing, eternal promises will fail. If I die, God gives life to the dead. If I fail, there's a lot on a pastor's shoulders. I, I've been watching this documentary about Hillsong and been, been listening to all these different things that have happened in these churches with these moral scanners. I'm like, oh my Lord. 
The stakes are high. I, like there, there have been moments I'm like, God, I, I want to die before that ever happens. Don't ever, please. Like, just take me out. But the good news is, is that if I prove, and I will, and whether it's little ways or big ways, if I prove to be completely morally empty, and I prove what you all hopefully already know, that I have no righteousness, pastor though I be, that I have no righteousness in and of myself, what hope then do I have? God can bring things ex nihilo. He doesn't need me to have anything because it depends on him. You might be someone that's looking at your life and saying, you have no clue what I've done. You have no clue about this. I am, I'm not just empty. I'm empty and shriveled and imploded in righteousness. There's, there's nothing there. Great. God can bring things into existence that don't exist. The womb of your righteousness might be dead. You don't see how God could ever keep his promise that he will give birth to righteousness in you. By the grace of God, God gives life to dead wombs that are void of righteousness. My friends, we, we're, we're not asking, do we ever doubt? Do we ever, you know, like even Abraham have these moments of lapses of judgment. Even he did. But it comes back to, do we ever keep looking, keep striving, keep praying for the Lord to strengthen our faith? I love the way it says, Abraham Abraham did not waver, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. I actually hate the way that that's translated. Because that's not what the Greek says. The Greek says he was strengthened in his faith. He grew strong as an active verb. This is why theology matters sometimes. He grew strong as an active verb, as if Abraham did the growing, right? The Greek is passive. He was strengthened in the faith. Do you see the difference? Who strengthened Abraham's faith? Did Abraham plant his faith and then grow it? Or was his faith planted, passive, and then grown by a different gardener? That's what Paul's getting at. He believed God. Why? Because God brought him there. And not only that, he was strengthened in his faith. My friends, we cannot spark faith in and of ourselves. Even our faith depends on God. We are all like the man who brings the child to Jesus, saying, Lord, help my unbelief. You can't do anything in yourself to make yourself believe harder. To those who find their faith weak and wavering, even you must look to God who strengthens faith. And in doing so, you will find yourself already modeling the faith of Abraham. Look to God, always. But what is faith then? Faith is believing that God can do as he has promised and that he will do all that he has promised. Hope against hope. Fully convinced. That God is El Shaddai, the one who brings life to the dead and who creates ex nihilo. So, let's conclude then, shall we? What are the implications for you? If all this is true, what's the implications for you in the Christian life? Paul says, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So like Abraham, we're facing the same hindrances to God's problem, uh, to God's uh, promises. We have barrenness in and of ourselves. We are empty. We are as good as dead. And yet we like Abraham come with this faith. We believe as Christians, if you want to know what it is that has brought us together as this diverse, crazy, fallen, broken, immature people of God. What has brought us together? We believe that God gave his eternal son who took on flesh, died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and then three days later rose again. We believe that when God gave life to his dead son at the tomb, he also 
gave us a justification ex nihilo. Out of the tomb walked our justification. How are we the people of God? What is the basis that we are the people of God? Well, he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God right now. That's the basis. He walked out of the empty tomb. That's something that we're going to celebrate in just a couple of weeks. We have a justification that's ex nihilo because we have a God that raised the dead to life. God that raised his own son to life. We have a faith like Abraham that looks always to Jesus, the yes and amen of all God's promises. And our faith, because we have that faith, is credited to us as righteousness. What then? Well, your faith is not just the welcome mat. To the house of God. Your faith is the roof, the floor, the foundation, and the walls of God's house. That's it. You can keep all the stances that you have. You can keep all the, all the, the positions that you might have. All the arguments that you might have. You take out faith. You're not in the house of God. Faith in Jesus is what it means to be in God's house. It's not just the welcome mat. Yeah, I believed in Jesus. Now I'm past that. No. When you believe in Jesus, faith is the welcome mat. It's the door. It's the windows. It's the walls. It's the roof. It's the foundation. You ever stop believing you're not in the house. You live present tense right now and must live and must live tomorrow by faith. That's it. And I hope that's good news when you fall short on Monday. When you open up your phone and you get all tricked out about the, the crazy lady who has no clothes on your phone on Monday, I hope you remember when you have fallen short and fallen flat and proven yourself as evil and wicked and vile as ever, that our stance with the Lord is by faith. And then I hope that leads you to repentance. Because that's the natural next step with faith. We believe that Jesus is risen from the grave, that he died for that sin. Why then would we want to continue to rebuild what he destroyed? On Tuesday, when you get mad at your wife. On Wednesday, when you cuss out your boss. On Thursday, when you do something on I-35 that you shouldn't do. On Friday, when you you just... You wake up and you see the whole span of the week and it finally dawns on you on Friday that maybe you're a hypocrite. And then Saturday, you start questioning openly. I just don't even see what God's doing with me. I can't even understand why God would save me. Then come back on Sunday and hear the gospel all over again. And guess what? It will be next Sunday. You are saved by faith. The message won't change between now and then. Another implication is that God is, uh, that God is not just saving an individual. He's saving a group of people. We are the sons and daughters, plural, of Abraham. God's plan of redemption includes, includes saving individual, individuals, but it is not individualistic. Do you hear that? The plan of salvation includes saving individuals, but it is not individualistic. As Paul has said repeatedly, we are saved by faith, and yet this faith has led to an inclusion into a family. This is a beautiful aspect about redemption that is underemphasized, especially in our Western culture where Christian discipleship can happen in a vacuum without any concern of what God is doing among the people of God. The fact that God's promises include giving Abraham many sons and daughters should lead, this, lead us to a beautiful reality that we belong in the family of God. Those of you who don't think you have any need for church. Those of you who don't think you need, have any need for other believers. Those of you who think that you can watch sermons, stay in PJs, wear house shoes, and be perfectly consistent with the plan of God. The whole testimony of the Bible is against you. You haven't gotten it. It's not about you. It's about us. You see, Christian maturity comes with 
where we stop talking about me, 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 me. And when we start realizing that the family of God is a we. It's not about me singing solos on stage. It's about the people of God belting out hymns together. It's not about me looking good. It's about people of God being raised up to teach kids in Sunday school. To be able to articulate the gospel that they once did not be able to articulate. That is what it's about. The people of God together growing in faith. You are a part of the family of God. And I hope you see that. Why that's good news. As a church, we are the visible representation of an invisible truth. God has kept his promise to Abraham. Just look at the people of God. Diverse. Beautifully contoured. Massively inconsistent at times. Terribly fallen, pimply bride that she is. Is the beautiful bride of Jesus Christ. You have been saved to be a part of the family of God. So what then? Well, we come together as people of God because we have faith in Christ. That's how we know that we're a part of the people of God. And we live together, live among each other. We work with each other. We are patient and long-suffering with each other so that together we can grow in our faith and be strengthened in faith in Jesus Christ. This is a dress rehearsal. This is a dress rehearsal of the great day when our Savior splits the sky and brings us home. We get the great joy today of singing a new song. I love new song Sundays. We're singing a song called Almost Home. And for those of you that are looking at the world and you just don't know how you're going to make it, How are we ever going to get there? I mean, look at all the wars. Look at all the moral failures. Look at all the the scandals. Look at all the brokenness. How, How do we know that God will bring his children home? By faith. And now we sing that truth together. So let's pray and let's let's belt it out. You may not know it. I'm always going to teach it. Um, And then I pray that it'll be stuck on your mind all week long and that you will keep singing it in your car awkwardly um, down I-35, that you will remember that it is by faith alone. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this uh, time. God, I, um, I pray, Lord, that you take my sometimes incoherent, inadequate words and that you will work faith and grace out of them, Father, by uh, bringing dead hearts to life and creating faith where there once was none. And we just sing to you, our God, our Father, who made a promise to our father Abraham and who will bring his children home. We love you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.